Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Class teacher Doug Brady is taking us through the book of Daniel, one verse at a time. In fact, today's lesson is the 32nd lesson in this series, and we still have three more chapters to go following this lesson. We are digging deep into the narrative, prophecy, and prayers of Daniel to learn about the end days. All of us in the class have grown in our Christian walk as we realize the importance of the writing of this book. Today we move toward the end of ninth chapter of Daniel, where Daniel accomplishes six purpose plans during the 490-year prophetic period of time. The title of this lesson the six prophetical events of Daniel, chapter 9, and the starting of God's clock. This is taken from Daniel, chapter 9, and verses 24 to 27. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building on our downtown campus. We invite you to visit our class where you will find a very friendly welcome. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom and open our Bible to Daniel chapter 9. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. We're going to start just for the fun of it, go back to make sure everybody's online. What book in the Bible are we studying? Daniel. Daniel. Okay, good. And... Can anybody tell me what chapter we're in? Chapter 9. And can anybody tell me now what portion of chapter 9 we're in? The last four verses. Because that's the what? The prophecy. Now, you remember I talked to you about the fact we're going to unpeel these last four verses like an onion. We're going to take a skin off and see what's there and then take peel another layer off until we get to the very heart of it. But we have to do it in order. Now, the last time we were here, last Sunday, we looked at the first three steps. And let's see if we can go over those again, the first three steps. Number one, the prophecy is only about the Jewish people, Israel, Jerusalem, and the temple. Is it talking about the church? No. Could it have some effect on the church? Certainly. But it's not talking about the church. The church is not involved in what it's saying. And that's very, very important to understand. Number two, the prophetic timeline that Daniel is given is 490 years. Now, I'm going to take a quick vote. Real quick, how many of you believe that the Bible gives us the information to determine exactly the day and the hour that Jesus is coming back to the earth in the second advent? How many believe that that's, that we can figure it out? 
Nobody does. How many believe that the Bible gives you the information to determine exactly when, what year, Jesus is going to come and rapture us? Does anybody believe we can figure that out? How many of you believe that the Bible gives us the information to be able to determine when Jesus was going to be born? Anybody? You ever heard of the prophecy of the star? He, he did. How many of you believe that the Bible... Now, I'm talking now because I'm talking about past events, not future events. So would give the people who were alive then the information to know these things. Is there anybody here who believes that the Bible would give people information to know when Jesus was going to come and claim to be king? Anybody believe that? Ah, it does. We're going to find that out in the next couple of verses, the next couple of Sundays. We're going to see that. Now, the final step three we looked at last time was the length of a prophetic or judgmental or Jewish year is 360 days. 360 days. You say, well, you know, it doesn't work out. They had ways to make it work out. They would add days and do things. You know, what, every four years we add a day, right? That's not so unusual. But that was the thing. Now, when we looked at that, I had to tell you that really, you say, why are we spending all the time on that? That's really unnecessary. It's kind of boring. Oh, but it won't be. When we get to it and you see what the purpose of that is, maybe when we get to step six or something like that. But today, I want you to see, I was hoping that nobody would be here today because I was going to ask him this question. What is the first step we're going to start with today? Does anybody have an answer? Number four, that's exactly right, because it comes right after number three. See, we have magnificent insights in this class. But I want you to look at this, because I think this is important, and we're going to look at John 9, 24. But before we go any farther, let's pray. Father, as we open up the Scriptures today, and we look at the way you have preserved things for us and the insights that we can have now from what you are showing us. I pray that you help us to be faithful in dividing your word and becoming well acquainted with and thoroughly equipped and skillful at your word. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Now, just for example... I want to show, tell you something that you're going to see. In Daniel's prophecy here, he predicts that there are a group of people who are going to come and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Now, in our time today, do we know who that people who, who that people were? Who? The Romans. They came in what year? 70 A.D., they destroyed Jerusalem, they killed a million Jews, they just completely destroyed the temple. Now, in this prophecy, before that happens, who appears as the Messiah? The Messiah appears. The prophecy said the Messiah will appear before that. If you're sharing the gospel with a Jewish person, according to Daniel, the Messiah had to come before 70 A.D. That's what the prophecy says. If Daniel's correct, 
They can't be waiting for the Messiah. His had to have already come and before 70 A.D. Now you just got to figure out who it was that came before 70 A.D. That makes it pretty easy, doesn't it? Now, I'm just telling you that because this is the kind of things that those, this prophecy gives us. It's amazing. Now, let's start in, in Daniel 9.24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Now, I have a confession to make today. As I used to study this, I used to think, well, the things it's really saying there, that's kind of just filler. Let's get on to the really good stuff. That starts in 25. And, of course, that is so wrong. Now, do we have a slide, Jerry, that shows those six things, the six purposes? We're going to start with this one, to finish the transgression. What in the world does that mean? If you look at these, it seems like it's, they're really repetitive. They just pick different words and say the same thing. What does it mean to finish the transgression? We're going to look at each of these carefully today because I think it's very important for us to understand. And as we're doing this, when are all these things going to incur? What period of time? 490 years. These are going to happen in the 490 years. If you want to say it's going to happen some other time, you can't because the prophecy says these are going to happen in 490 years. Number two, who are they going to happen to? Israel, Jews. That's what's going to happen. All right. Now, Gabriel tells the prophet, that is Daniel, and he us of these six events that are going to occur. We really do need to understand these. But I'm going to tell you, as you look at them, they're hard to understand. They really are. And I ask myself, as I've been studying on these for several weeks, who would be the person who would be best able to understand them? And I began to realize a Jew who knows thoroughly the Old Testament and yet knows the New Testament too. Where do you find somebody like that? Well, Jerry, show us who that is. Ever heard of Arnold Schorkenbaum? Luckily, I got to go to a seminar about 10 years ago that my wife and her mother persuaded me to go to. And I got to meet Arnold. And I got to personally ask him a bunch of questions. And I realized this man's brilliant. And then they said, Doug, you can't leave here without buying his book, Footsteps of the Messiah. If you don't have that book, you might want to get that book. And what we're going to do now is go through these six things, and we're going to going to see what they're really talking about. Now, to finish the transgression, as, as you'll see here, God's going to accomplish these six purposes. You see the six right there? Finish the transgression is the number one one. So let's get that list of, of those. To finish. To finish the transgression. Go to the next one. To finish the transgression. What does that mean? To finish is a Hebrew word. It's, it's kalal, and it's in PL stem. And it means to bring to completion, to bring to completion. Well, what is being brought to completion? Well, you have this word transgression. It's the word pasha, and it means transgression or rebellion. But it's the kind of transgression that's not a negligent or not, I wasn't thinking. It's an intentional action, especially in the PL. PL stem is always intentional action here. Now, 
what does he put, what does the writer put before that word transgression? The definite article. It is the, not any transgression, the. When it comes to the Jewish people, what is the transgression? The rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. That is going to be finished. That is going to be brought to a completion. That's what that's talking about. If you look, uh, say, John chapter 12, starting in verse 36b, it says these things. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This is to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet which he spoke, the Lord who has believed our report. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes or perceive with their heart or be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that he would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Now, this passage in John chapter 12, do you remember the main event that's going on in John chapter 12? That's when it talks about Palm Sunday and Jesus arriving in, Jer in Jerusalem, riding on the coal or the foal of a donkey. And what this is, this is the statement of the national rejection. After this, it was all over for the Jews. Jesus said, that's it. You've had your final chance. No more. I came and I told you I was king and you ought to coronate me and anoint me as king. And you chose not to do it and rejected me. And in fact, the people who were saying, Hosanna, you told them, shut up. It's blasphemy. And so we need to see here that this was the final rejection of the long-promised Messiah. But Daniel is predicting now that Israel's rejection would be overturned before the end of the 490 years. Overturned. Did? Is this really true? Well, let's look at Isaiah starting in chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message, Isaiah says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You notice uh, this is what John was quoting. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Notice the use of that same word again. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastising for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Now, that passage right there, do you know what, it, what contest it wins? It wins the contest for the least read chapter in Jewish synagogues today. They don't ever read this. You can show that to a Jewish person, and most of the time they'll say, 
I can't, I'm having a hard time believing that's in the book of Isaiah. Why? We, I've never heard of that before. Oh, I wonder why. Look again in Zechariah, uh, verses uh, 12, 10, and 3, 1. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and we will weep bitterly over him like bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day a fountain will be opened in the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. What Zechariah is saying, there will come a time when we will turn back to our Messiah. He doesn't say when. Daniel does. In that 490 years before it's over, they will. All of Israel on a national level will turn to the Lord. All who are still alive. Look again in Romans 11. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them, and I will take away their sins. And he's quoting Isaiah 59. So the transgression of Israel, rejection of the Messiah, will be undone before the 490 years expires. That's number one of these six. Number two. To make an end of sin. To make an end of sin. Now, that does sound like it's repetitive. But it's here, it doesn't say the sin, does it? Not a definite article. It's an indefinite article. The word to make an end of is a Hebrew word. It's tamam, and it means to cease doing. Cease doing. It's in the Hephil stem. The word sin, kata, means just ordinary sin. The sins that we commit on a daily basis. That's the kind of sin it's talking about. The sin that, a, say, a, a sin offering each day would be offered for to make atonement or to, or to cover those, those sins. The concept being expressed here is not only is the national sin of Israel going to be removed as indicated in the first statement, but here the daily sins of regular life. Now think about this. If this were to happen to you, you're not going to sin anymore. Would that not be wonderful? I mean, now I don't know about you. I have a fight with sin, it seems like, almost every day. But now my wife, it's different. She's, she's so angelic. But me, I have to fight it. And I want you to consider what he says about this. In Ezekiel chapter 36, he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to, preserve, to observe my ordinances. Ezekiel 37. And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be my God. Now Ezekiel is saying, this is going to happen. No more sin for those of Israel who this is going to happen to. But he doesn't tell you when. Daniel does within that 490 years. You see, sin on a daily basis will be terminated from God's people. Now, let me ask you all a question. Could sin on a daily basis be terminated in you right now? Why not? 
Why do you say? Why not? What would prevent it? Why do you sin? It's your nature. You have an old sin nature embedded in you. So how can God change the national sin and stop the daily sin if they still have the old sin nature in them? The answer is, he's going to take it away too. That's the next thing. Look at it. And to make an atonement for iniquity. Atonement for iniquity. It is by this means by which the first two purposes are accomplished. The rejection of the Messiah and the daily sins of the people are terminated by this atonement. The atonement spoken of here is specifically for iniquity. And this word iniquity refers to the sin nature that they carry as descendants of Adam, that you and I carry as descendants of Adam. So one of the two, as we finish these first three, one of the two primary purposes of these 77s or 49 years is to cleanse Israel, going to cleanse her of her national sin of rejecting the Messiah, cleanse her of the daily sins of her people, and cleanse her of the sin nature that resides in the hearts of her people. No longer will these people sin. No longer will that keep going on. Christians are going to come a time when that old sin nature will be removed from your heart too. It's called the rapture, not for the Jews. See, we're not mixing church and the Jewish people. We're mixing the nation of Israel. This will happen in this 490 years. You say, you know, that's an awfully broad period of time. Actually, it's not. You know why? Because 483 of those years have already occurred, and these events haven't happened yet. So now we're looking at a window of seven. The only question is, when does that seven start? Hasn't it already occurred? No, hasn't yet. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, let's look at the next three because they are in a different vein. That was talking about the sin and its removal. Now we have three different. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To bring in everlasting righteousness. What does that mean? This age of righteousness, and, and really there's a word trans that should be translated age. Does any of your Bibles have them bring in the age of righteousness? I'm not looking at your Bible. Nobody can see it. So nobody has that. Well, you can translate it that way instead of everlasting. You can translate it to age of righteousness. And what it's referring to there is the messianic kingdom, or maybe some of you know it better as the millennial kingdom. That kingdom will be brought in within this 490 years. When you hear the disciples talking to Jesus all the time, what's one of the main questions they're asking? When's the kingdom coming? Is the kingdom coming now? No. Daniel already told them. Within the 490 years, the kingdom will come. I want you to consider several passages uh, about that. In Isaiah 1, 26, it says this. Then I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. And after that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. If you go on down in Isaiah to chapter 11, it says this, starting in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision 
by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with faithfulness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also the righteous will be a belt upon his loins, and the faithfulness a belt upon his waist. What this passage is talking about, what's going to be going on in the kingdom, the, the millennial kingdom. Again, Jeremiah is going to speak about it too. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, that I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king, and he will act as wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Let's stop there just a second. Is there someone that God's raising up to be king? Who? Jesus. Did Jesus come and claim to be king when he was here on earth the first time? Yes, he did. The people said no. But when he comes back the second time, they are not going to say no. He is going to appear first how? On a horse. What color is the horse? Is there anything written on him? King of kings and Lord of lords. And a host of other names. Some that you won't be able to understand. But he's coming back. And look what he says. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the the Lord of righteousness. The Lord of righteousness. Now in Romans 11, 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. We read that before. Question? I've got a question we want to ask. All right. The kingdom, the kingdom is the presence of Jesus Christ on earth. Is that right? Well, he will establish the kingdom when he comes back. It will be an actual kingdom. And when he comes back, I wouldn't imagine that it wouldn't have taken more than a couple milliseconds to establish everything since he is all-powerful. True. I'm going to suggest to you when we get closer to the end that there will be at least one event that will take three days. But, uh, yes, it will be established. It will be very quickly. There will be some judgments that occur because there will be people who are alive at the end of of that seven, final seven years. Some of them will be unbelievers. Some of them will be believers. And he will divide them. And his, he's going to say, I'm going to divide them like a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And the goats are going to be put in a place, of, let's call it a holding cell. Maybe you want to call refer to it as Hades or Sheol until the final white throne judgment occurs at the end of the millennial kingdom. And after the final revolt of Satan, but you know, although the Antichrist and the false prophet get thrown into the lake of fire at the end of that seven-year period, Satan does not. Satan will be thrown into something referred to as the bottomless pit, and he'll stay there for that thousand years, and then he'll be unleashed, and he will persuade a number of the people who are alive then to follow him, and there'll be one final rebellion. And then, as Steve told me this morning, all those who are following him, fire will come down from heaven and consume them all. And then comes that final judgment. But when Jesus sets up his kingdom, there are going to be some things. For example, you probably will be put in charge of a city. 
that you'll be in charge of. Patsy probably is going to be put in charge of three cities that she's in charge of. Well, we'll see. You know what? You're not the one who makes the decision whether you're qualified or not. Jesus does. So, uh, yes. Question. So, are you saying to bring in everlasting righteousness is the millennial kingdom? Yes. Okay, but the millennial kingdom did not happen in the 490 years, does it? It will be started right at the 490th, end of the 490th year. And Jesus said it was finished on the cross, or... Oh, wait, say that again. I didn't hear the first part. Is that... Is that the time when Jesus said it was finished on the cross? No, no. No, that's when salvation was procured for all people of all times if they choose to accept the gift. Okay, so when did the righteousness start? The righteousness now. Is it the righteousness of the world? No. What are we talking about now? Israel. Israel, at that point, will have everlasting righteousness. No one from Israel will follow Satan at the end of that tribulation period. They are going to be everlasting righteousness from them. No sin nature. He, they're going to be his people, and that's it for Israel. But when I was trying to establish when the age of righteousness started. When the millennial kingdom starts. That, that happens. It happens at the end of Revelation 19, beginning of 20. Right. Uh, if, if you look at Revelation 19, 67, um, in the Jubilee, you know anything about the harlot in Isaiah chapter 1? That doesn't say in Isaiah chapter 1 that Jerusalem is a harlot. And then at the end, uh, in fact, if you look at like the Old Testament, Jerusalem and Israel would also be seen as a harlot and then as a woman. So if you look at Revelation 19, When we're looking at Revelation 19, I'm not sure whether he's talking about the church or Israel. I think the church. But the fact is that that is when righteousness for Israel will be commenced, start of that kingdom, and, and continue on. That's what he's saying here. Charles, this 4 a.m. Let me go on or I'm not going to be able to finish today. Number three, we talked about iniquity being removed. The fourth trumpet is the second most coming about the kingdom, not body, not church, and did not know. Oh, then I, I missed something seriously then. And let's go back because there's some important points to be made about that. And we need to see that if I miss that. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Oh, I see the point that we're making. And this is, this is a very important point that Julian wants, didn't want me to skip. Then let's talk about this. If the righteousness is cleansed by that point, and the next point is to bring in this everlasting righteousness, which is the millennial kingdom, who is Daniel saying is doing that? Does only one person know that in this room? Come on now. Who's bringing in the kingdom? Does the kingdom ever start until the white horse appears? And who's coming down and setting up the kingdom? Jesus is. All right. Do you know there are... I, I get carried away, you're going to see. And, 
there are idiots in our country who put on the internet that we're in the kingdom right now. How can that possibly be when sin is so magnified? Now, I want you to think about it for this just a second. There are also people in our country and maybe around, but let's just be concerned with us because I understand English and I don't understand most of those other languages very well, who say, well, we are working to bring in the kingdom. Who's the leader of that? How about Rick Warren of bringing in the kingdom? They are all in this, and we could name names after names. But we need to understand something that's very important here, and that is this. We're not to be about bringing in the kingdom. In fact, the Jewish people are responsible for bringing in the kingdom. The kingdom is not an activity of the church. Now, I want you to think about this. With that said, and hopefully that understood, is there a kingdom that's coming here on the earth pretty soon? What kingdom is that? We've seen the Babylonians. We've seen the Persian kingdom. We've seen the kingdom of Greece. We've seen the kingdom of Rome. Oh, the Antichrist kingdom is coming. If the church or part of it is working to bring in the kingdom, which kingdom is that going to be? The Antichrist kingdom. Does Satan ever use God's people to accomplish his purposes? You know the perfect example of that? Jesus came to the disciples and he said, who do people say I am? They told him, well, who do you say I am? Peter immediately jumped up. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, that's great, Peter. Uh, you didn't say that on your own. The Holy Spirit put that on your own. But you need to understand the Son of God is going to have to suffer and die at the hands uh, of the Pharisees, of the Jewish leaders, and he's going to be put to death. He's going to, and Peter said, oh, wait a second, wait a second here. And he came, Jesus, come on, we need to talk. He puts his arm around Jesus, takes him back. And he said, Jesus, don't say that. You, you don't need to be saying that. That's not right. And what did Jesus say to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. Who was using Peter? You mean Satan could be using somebody like Peter? Absolutely, he can use all of us if we're not careful. We have to understand the scriptures. The church has nothing to do with bringing in the kingdom. And if we try to do it, all we're going to do is be used by Satan. Now, some of us say, man, that's awfully strong, Doug. No, it's not. It's accurate. Would you conclude then that the church is not in Revelation? No, I wouldn't. No. We're the, we're the church that's coming back. We're the ones coming back with Jesus at the start of that battle of, or at the end of that battle of Armageddon, right before the kingdom is set up. His national Israel that is going to be saved is not in heaven at that time. Right. So I want you to think about this now. Let's go to the next one, and that is to seal up vision and prophecy. To seal up vision and prophecy. The word translated to seal up, khatam, it means a cessation by bringing about complete fulfillment. By the end of this 490-year period, all prophecies, all covenants, all promises made to Israel will come to fruition and be fulfilled. Every covenant he made with them, every promise he gave to them, every agreement that he had with them will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. What will be the western boundary of Israel? 
the Nile River and the Mediterranean Sea. What will be the eastern boundary of Israel? Euphrates. Euphrates. Now, you see that? Right now, those people living over there are using up all of Israel's oil. <laughs> of course, I don't think maybe they'll need any oil come the millennial kingdom, so it's okay. But I want you to see that. He's, this is what he's going to do. Now, prophecies made in the New Testament, they're not included here. Anything about the church, it's not included here. We've got to keep reminding ourselves. But the establishment of the kingdom is the final fulfillment of all the promises that God has made to Israel. Now, I want you to think about that. How many covenants, really, central covenants has God made with Israel? You know, most of us would say three. There's the Abrahamic covenant. There's the Mosaic covenant. There's the Davidic covenant. But actually, there's a fourth, the New Covenant. The New Covenant. Where is it? Jeremiah. Jeremiah, exactly right. Chapter 31. Let's read that New Covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, does he just include Judah? No, it's all 12 tribes. You could say 13 if you're going to divide one tribe in half. But I will make a new covenant with them and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. There you go. That comparison of the wife is the father, the, co the husband of Israel, but Jesus, the husband of the church. I say here in the Old Testament, it's saying that he, the father, is the husband of Israel. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and they will not teach again each man his neighbor, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And it is this covenant that will provide God the means to accomplish this process of cleansing his people and sealing up and completing every promise he's made to us. Now, the final part, the anointing of the most holy place. Now, there's some disagreement in Christendom of what this means. I came to my conclusion. What I like to do is I like to review the passage, study it, look at other places in the Bible, and then come to an understanding of what I believe it is. And the reasons why I believe that. Then I'll go look at what other people say. For example, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. For example, Andy Woods. For example, Charles Riley. Dwight Pentecost. Look at what they're saying. Clarence Larkin is another one I like to look at. What is being anointed here? First, we want to make sure we understand. It's not a person that's being anointed. It's a place. Place. What is the most holy place? Well, I am convinced it's the inner sanctum of the temple that many refer to as the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple. Let's look at a diagram here for just a minute of the temple. Uh, this is the entrance right over here. You come in, this is the court of women. 
And then you come in, and here is the brazen altar. It's bronze altar. That's where all the sacrifices were made. This is the bronze basin, and that's where the, the priest would wash ceremonially wash themselves before they would go into here. Here's the holy place. There's three pieces of furniture there. There's the table of showbread, which only the priests were to eat. There is the golden candlestick with the seven lights. And then there, that was the one you remember that they had to have burning for seven days, or eight days in the, when they were cleansing the temple in the time when Hanukkah came about, or the Feast of Lights. They also have altar of incense. The altar of incense, that's where the priests would go in and offer the incense, which represented the prayers of the people. You remember that's what Zechariah was doing when Gabriel showed up and said, you're going to have a son, you're going to name him John. But inside this curtain, heavy, thick curtain, is a place called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. There was only one item furniture there. That was the Ark of the Covenant uh, with the mercy seat. How often did people go in there? Once a year. And who could go in? Only the high priest. He's bringing in, what time of the year was it? The Day of Atonement. He's bringing in a basin of blood, and he's going to sprinkle it uh, on the mercy seat. Now, if that sacrifice is not accepted, what would happen to him? He would die. Well, how would they ever get him out? Ah, oh, they got a rope tied around. Can you imagine as you're standing there with that basin of blood, another priest is tying a rope to your right leg? What's going through your mind? And, you know, it's a little difficult walking with that rope, and this is a very heavy curtain you have to go around. But I imagine nobody else is going to touch that curtain to help you get in there. No. Nope. Yes. Yeah. Well, I've never been in there, so I don't know for certain. But I think maybe that God might have had something to do with that. But th there was no cleaning that I have found that is responsibility of that high priest in any of the literature. Now, the question is, what was he sprinkling blood on in the second temple? Because some people don't believe that the Ark of the Covenant was in there. And that's one of the reasons that God ripped that curtain from top to bottom when Jesus passed away. But, uh, yes? Uh, Revelation 11, 1, there is, there is a holy place. <laughs> then we're getting to that. You're anticipating me because when we say the holy place, what temple is he talking about? Because when Daniel received this prophecy, what temple was there? Zero temple. No temple. It was destroyed. So he's not talking about the first temple, which was Solomon's temple. Now, the next temple was Zerubbabel's temple. They built that when they came back. Was that the temple he's talking about? No. Is there another temple after that? The third temple. Whose temple is that? Well, the third temple is going to be the uh, temple of the Antichrist. Well, now, it didn't start that way, but the Antichrist makes his covenant with Israel. Why? He wants them to build a temple. Why? Because he's going to take it over. He's going to set himself up in that temple. Remember the abomination of desolation? We'll get to that when we get to verse 27. So it's not that, but it will be the millennial temple. Herod's temple was really Zerubbabel's temple. Zerubbabel built it. Herod came over and, and, and remodeled it and made it much grander and much nicer, but it was Zerubbabel's temple. All right. So... This four temple. I want you to go back, but before we go back, do you remember when we were studying chapter 8? And there was a prediction in there about a little horn coming out of the Grecian Empire. 
And who did we say that was predicted by or predictive of? Now, in chapter 8, it talks about the ram and the goat. Out of the goat was coming a little horn, and that little horn came out of one of the four horns, and it was a world ruler who would be terrible to Israel. Antiochus Epiphanes, that was the prophecy of it, of who it would be. But didn't we also come to understand that that prophecy was foreshadowing of another world ruler, another ruler who would be terrible to Israel, and who was that? The Antichrist. It wasn't predictive of the Antichrist, but it was foreshadowing him. I found something I found very interesting as I was reading this and studying this week. I want you to look at John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. And the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us of your authority to do these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, it's interesting. I want you to look at that verse carefully because this was one of Jesus' quotes that the false witnesses used to try and convict him in his trial. But when they say it, it's in Matthew 20. I can't remember the chapter in Matthew. But when they say it, they said, he said, I will destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up or rebuild it. That's not what he said. He doesn't say who's destroying the temple. He just said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Now, what w- who was he really talking about there who's going to do it? The people he's talking to, the Pharisees. Because what did he say that really was? His body, he would be killed, and three days later. Now, that's what Jesus said, and, and John tells us in John, that's what he's saying. That's what he was really talking about. They thought he was talking about the temple he was standing in, which he had just cleansed, the temple of Zerubbabel, then as remodeled by Herod. But he's saying, I'm not, that's not the temple. John says he meant this temple. That was what he was predicting, that he would die, that is, his temple would be destroyed, and in three days he would raise. Now, that brings us to another question. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Who does it say right here in this verse? Yes. Other places it says Jesus did it. Other places said the Holy Spirit did it. Other places said God the Father did it. They all did it. But Jesus saying, in, you know, in John 10, 10, no one forces me to lay down my body. I lay it down, my life, and I lift it up. Where, I mean, in chapter 10 of John, I'm sorry. In chapter 10, I think it's just, but we can look. I can't remember exactly the passage, but that's what he says. No one takes my life from me. I choose to lay it down, and I choose to take it back up again. Now, here's my question. Could it be that although this was predictive of Jesus' death and resurrection, it also has prophetic foreshadowing of how the temple will be built in the millennium? Jesus, three days, establishes the millennial temple. Now, will was Solomon's temple magnificent? Yeah, it was. I don't know what this third temple is going to look like. But will there be any comparison with the temple that Jesus built? It's going to be magnificent. Now, I got a couple of questions about these six things now we've talked about. Yes. The, uh, the temple that in Revelation 11, where that... That image was not destroyed. Is that is that the beginning of the temple that ends up in the millennial 
I don't think so. I think everything's going to be destroyed, and Jesus is going to start from scratch with his own. Well, when it was destroyed, everything had been destroyed. Well, that temple had been defiled by the Antichrist. Yeah, but not, but not the inner court. Well, maybe not. Well, we'll have to look at that and look at chapter 13 as to where he places that statue and the things that he does. But I'm probably not able to speak to that right now. Two key questions I want us to ask. Which of these six prophetic events has been fulfilled in the first 69 years? There were six of them, you remember? Which of them had been fulfilled in the first 69 years or 469 weeks or 483 years? <laughs> She's right. None of them. None of them. Has Israel changed and, uh, and worshiped the Messiah? No. Has the Messiah? Have the sins of Israel stopped? No. Has their sin nature been removed? No. Has the uh, millennial kingdom come? No. Has vision and prophecy been all fulfilled? No. Has the most holy place been anointed? No. All of these things are going to happen near the end of the final week, the final seven years. I want you to see that. And now, that's going to take us on to step five. And I want you to see this if we have a little time. Gosh, I couldn't get through this fast enough. I have to apologize, but we're not going to be able to, to get through to the end. Turn to page the last page of your notes. We're going to skip step five, and we'll do start step five next week. Next week, because I, I don't want to rush through this. We get into verse 25. That's the really cool time, and we'll just have to wait. I was all set up to do this. I was looking forward to it, but I want you to do this in Romans 4. Does God want us to know when things will happen? He clearly has said that no man will know the day or the hour of the second advent or second coming of Christ will occur. That's in Matthew 24. It's also in Mark. He doesn't tell us any way to know the year in which the rapture will happen, at least as far as I know, to determine what year it's going to happen in. Could it be that we could know the month and day? We possibly could if you think it's going to happen on the Feast of Trumpets. Other people suggest, nope, that's not when it's going to happen because it can happen any time. So there's a difference in Christendom over that, and there is a time coming when we will be given the answer to that question, which is correct. Could it happen any day, or will it have to happen on the Feast of Trumpets? And that would be the day we get raptured. Yes? My question is, is that the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., that is not a part of the time table, is it? I can't. I'm going to have to answer that next time. I don't want to ruin the buildup to that. We have to wait and see. We have to wait and see. Next, I was going to, but you know, we're not we're not getting to that today. Now, did he give us clues where one could know when the Messiah was going to be born? Yes. Did he tell us the exact little village and where he would be born? And did he tell us there was a sign that if you were watching, you could see and you would know? Were any of the Jews watching for that sign? And it had to be the, I'm going to call the disciples of, of Daniel, who were there watching for that sign, who saw and had read and understood the prophecies of Balaam, and they knew what was coming up. But what I'm going to tell you is I'm going to show you in the future, in our studies here in the next several weeks, I will show you that they could know exactly 
when Jesus was going to come and proclaim himself to be king. I'm not talking about the year. I'm not talking about the month. I'm talking about the day. 173,880 days after this 490 years started. I'm going to show you. And it's amazing. And we could have known. And in fact, you're going to see when we get there, Jesus said, this is a day you should have known about. What does that tell us that Jesus thinks about things? I've put all this in the scripture for you. Why don't you know it? Mark? You know, when Jesus wept over Jerusalem, he, he talked about everything that was going to happen, and he closed out that, that subject matter. He said, because you did not recognize the hour of your visitation. Which was, he's talking about that day, because that occurred at Palm Sunday as he rode into Jerusalem. And we will look at that all carefully. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that we could come together and study. I thank you for what you have given us in the scriptures. Help us to understand how many secrets, how many key pieces of knowledge that are there for us, but if we don't study them, we're going to be ignorant. Help us not to be like the Jewish people at the time when Jesus was born, not knowing. Help us instead, Father, to be prepared and to know. And as we come to learn these things, and as we come to see, Father, what what you are doing and what your plan is and the way that you're going to deal with sin, whether it's Israel's in the past or ours in the present, help us to be courageous to speak out and say, that is evil and it will be punished. Help me to be courageous to do this. Help those rest of us here to be courageous to do this. To be able to say, I'm not going to be a part of that. Just like those Pharisees who believed but they wouldn't confess it openly for fear of being cast out of the synagogue. Help us not to be like them. Help us not to bow to peer pressure or however significant the pressure is. Help us in <laughs>